On this Trendy Tuesday, we get to the bottom of the declines, upticks, and stagnations shaping our world. We'll start with community college enrollment, which is plummeting. Is COVID to blame or is there more to it? We'll also talk about Gen Z, who's spending a lot on travel. Where are they getting all the money? Then we'll pivot to remote jobs. Are they a thing of the past? We'll parse out the data that's proving it's harder and harder to get that dream remote job. And then we'll talk about music. First, there was Napster, then there was LimeWire, then there was MySpace and iTunes, Spotify. But is the new frontier for music on TikTok? All of this on today's Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everyone. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, we get to invite on our good friend, Mickey Ayub to the podcast today. Mickey, welcome. Thank you so much, guys. I'm really pumped to be here. Well, Mickey, just to introduce you, you are the very first employee at what was then the Lost Debate and now is the branch in the summer of, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago. And how do we describe you? Former uh, model turned political organizer turned media mogul? Is that what you are? <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh my dad would say that I'm just a goofy kid from a small town in Brazil that's trying too hard to be himself. I, I don't think you need to try that hard. Uh, but okay. <laughs> well, we have a voicemail, 321 I promise we're going to get to a few of them today, uh, at least one. And we're talking about trends today. And we had this pivot point where we were going to either talk about Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon, maybe Joe Biden's announcement. And I thought about it this morning. We talked it over and we're like, look, this is a path that's well-worn at this point over the last 48 hours. Whatever needs to be said Certainly. about Tucker Carlson and Don <laughs> Lemon has been said already. But one thing caught my attention that I want to talk about before we get to the rest of the trends, because I think this is going to be a very depressing trend, which is AI in dating apps. And there is this thing called CupidBot, which I sent you guys this morning. And I want to just get this out of the way. <laughs> this is this is their <laughs> so own description. Weird. Cubibot swipes and chats for you on dating apps to bring you several dates a week so you can skip to the good part. We filter out the attention seekers and only notify you when you get a date. Translation, this is using like GPT type technology to actually converse with people. And it seems to be, Ricky, only available to men. Is that your understanding of this? I think so, which I mean, doesn't seem, I mean, maybe there's there's probably a larger market to tap into there, to be honest. But um, I imagine it's harder to get a date or there's, I, I, I would imagine the statistics would pan out that the minutes spent as a male in a dating app is probably higher for the yield. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I'm the whole thing. I, I, I believe it will be short lived because I can't imagine that these dating apps won't very quickly ban whatever. However, this is plugging into their algorithm. Like I'm sure they can spot it pretty quickly if it's automating the swiping, but like, Holy crap! They were if it's if it's legit, their their ad has like the conversation going back and forth. Like it's kind of cheesy. I do agree that the the app will start banning this, but I think what's going to happen is there's a plugin outside of the app where people will then they'll have to manually enter it, but they'll be like, "All right, I'm in this conversation. What do I say if this person says X? Yeah. What do I say for Y?" And this is why I think this is a trend: is that we've talked previously about dating in your generation and how kind of, I don't want to be mean, but like kind of antisocial your generation has become in certain ways and like how they have trouble with certain in-person social settings. I only think this is going to make it way worse. Like if, if you don't even have to converse over the app anymore, like what are these people yeah. going to be like when they finally meet in real life? 
Well, the good news is the AI can't follow you to the actual date. So at least there's there's only Not so yet. far that it can go. Not yet, but maybe they'll have like an earpiece or something that can real-time generate Augmented the best reality. response for you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is just... Don't you guys think that it would help? Like, I remember I listened to an episode a couple of weeks ago that you said that 5% of men go on 50% of the dates. Like, I'm assuming there's some dudes that like don't necessarily know what to say and it could help them. Yeah, it's almost like a digital Hitch. If you ever see Hitch, the Will Smith movie, mm -hmm. which, Ricky, I'm counting on that you have not seen this movie. No idea. But I think the problem is the expectation gets baked in now. So women start to know in certain they certain like just like the professors who are paranoid that the students are using chat gpt on their papers i think women are going to start getting paranoid that the person who has the witty comeback is actually getting it through ai so i don't know rick mickey why don't you try this out this week i think it's in beta phase so you have to ask for permission um I don't, I don't know what your status is right now but if if the laws allow it uh get well, out there funny story funny story that you mentioned this ralph i literally had the <clears throat> conversation with my with this girl that I've been seeing yesterday that we are now exclusive so, oh, so I don't know off if, the I don't I am off right. the market now we'll have to test this with young Joe G then uh, all right and have him back on to talk about it well let's get to the rest of the trends we have a lot coming up on today's episode it's a crisis it's a crisis for community colleges because they rely very much on enrollment uh, for funding um, and it's a crisis for Society. Traveling, seeing 19 different countries in Europe changed my perspective again. I had signed up, I was going to be in a job where I'd be going in every day, lots of hours, and I decided to change that. I quit that job with one that allows for more of a work-life balance and hopefully remote. If we look back a year ago, uh, there was far more job openings than there were job candidates. So companies were willing to do almost anything to make work more appealing, and that included opening up a lot of remote opportunities. We're going in the other direction now. They wanted me to do a six TikTok campaign over the course of a month where we slowly and organically make the record go viral. They're literally blocking me from being able to release a song and there's nothing that I can do about it. Well, first up, college enrollment at community colleges has been tumbling for decades now and that has only gotten worse in recent years. Mickey, what's up there? This one took me by surprise, Ricky. Community college enrollment dropped nearly 40% in the past decade. It was 7 million in the fall of 2010 and 4.5 million in the fall of 2022, according to new data from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. Even though enrollment dropped, costs have risen in the past two decades. Community college have risen 46% and public universities was 76%. But the thing that's interesting is that students who graduate with an associate's degree are in 8,000 more per year this moment that did not go to college. So, Ricky, as you dug into the details and data, what do you think are some of the reasons and factors for this dramatic plunge in enrollment? I mean, I think there's never going to be one satisfying answer here, but I think there are a lot of threads um, depending on, you know, community college students tend to be more diverse in age. And so I'd imagine there's an element of those who are older who might have more childcare responsibilities in the pandemic or post-pandemic world that might be pulling back. Um, I think there's also the fact that the largest declines have just been around recent graduates and there's a change in the attitude around college with Gen Z. Um, half of high school students think that they can achieve their goals without a degree. And so, you know, it makes sense that the people that are feeling that that decline most heavily might be the people who are in the community college uh, 
potential pool otherwise. And then I think there's also the the fact that student loans have kind of blunted the differential of tuition costs. And so even if it is far cheaper in the long run for you to attend a community college, if you sign on to a student loan and, and go somewhere else, you might not realize or um, really grapple with that difference. And so that might be taking away from the perceived value um, relative of a community college degree. Yeah, what's interesting, Ricky, is you know they they have two roles. These community colleges, one is to prepare people to enter four year degree programs, and the other is to prepare people and certify them and credential them for jobs where you only need that associate's degree. You know, jobs mm-hmm. like nurses, EMTs, you know, dental hygienists, mechanics. My mom, for instance, went to a community college when she first became a nurse. And what's crazy here is that we're seeing this decline while those jobs that I just described are in huge demand across the country. And so part of the issue here might just be full employment generally, quote unquote, full employment. I know we're not like, that's like a complete, a very complicated debate about what we really mean by that. But the fact that we have such low unemployment could be driving these numbers. The other paradoxical thing here is that the tuition is so damn low at these community colleges. It's you know around $3,800 on average to attend a community college compared to around $11,000 for a public four-year college or $39,000 for a private four-year college. I mean, those are huge differences. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these community colleges, people, like you're saying, they're leaving with no debt. You know, I, I was looking at Miami-Dade College. This is you know, a place that's $1,419 per sem- semester, $1,419. And they talk about how fewer than 2% or less than 2% of students take on any debt. So, you know, this is a weird, this is weird, but what you're saying is, well, maybe the students aren't really factoring in the long-term load of the debt. Because at that point, they're just kind of signing up and they're, and maybe, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it makes sense when we talked about how one of the biggest issues with student loans is that you have teenagers that are signing on to debt that they don't really understand. It would make perfect sense that before student loans were rolled out to the degree that they were, that more people would defer to community colleges when they were really looking at the breakdown of how much they were going to have to pay per semester. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of it. But I also think like the fact that there are more than a million students that are holding off with college right now in terms of recent grads, that this doesn't surprise me. Um, And we've also seen an uptick in trade school and uh, skilled trade programs. So uh, people are going into like HVAC and automotive repair uh, programs. And that's obviously another place where there's a huge amount of demand from employers. 89% of contractors said that they have a hard time finding workers and 61% have had to delay projects as a result of it. And so I think, you know, the people are just responding to different um, needs in the economy. And certainly that's an alternative that's growing while community college is declining. Yeah, what's fascinating about this data is people go into these programs saying that they want to get a bachelor's degree. So most of the people coming into these programs don't say, hey, I just want to get that two-year degree and leave. So four out of five say they want that bachelor's, but only one out of six actually get the bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And So this is like just people are not finishing these programs in anywhere near the numbers that they intend to. One bright spot, though, that's really fascinating here. and, And by the way, nearly half of people who enter these drop out within a year 
um, only 43% eventually get a degree within six years compared to 62% who get a degree after four year, at four-year colleges after six years. One bright spot in all this data, though, is dual enrollment programs at high school. So this is a growing share of community college students. So they now make up a fifth community college enrollment. And at 31 community colleges across the country, they are a majority of students at those community colleges. So they're really part of the secondary school system. And I think if these mm-hmm. things operate properly, there's like there isn't this clear dividing line between high school and college, the kids who are more accelerated and who are kind of bored at their traditional public school and have finished all the material, hopefully can access that community college material and in many ways is better than AP credit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with that. And I also think if we end up having meaningful student loan reform beyond just forgiveness, that the community college demand might again increase. I wouldn't be surprised if that trend reverses. But I mean, then there's also a a clear pro to going for some people. Um, 30% of people with associate's degrees make more than the average person with a bachelor's degree. And so for some people, they they find their path, they do what they want, and they and and it pays off and it pays dividends compared uh, with the tuition that bachelor's degree people are finding themselves crippled by. Ricky, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. So aside from like Native Americans and Alaskans, the past 20 years, like all major minority groups have increased enrollment in community college, like with obviously its peaks just before the 2008 crisis. And I saw that in a recent study, like in five large community colleges in Florida, that the top four reasons of why they left were cost too high, living expenses were also too high, ran out of financial aid, and unpredictable schedules because they also worked. Do you think we should consider some level of community college or as a whole as a public good? Um, I mean, I think given the relative cost compared to the public cost, I mean, I imagine that, that having a financial aid program for those in need would be a a way to control for that. But I don't think that not having any sort of barrier to entry in terms of tuition is necessarily healthy because I do think you need for the typical student to have the buy-in to say, I've picked this degree, I'm willing to pay this amount of dollars for it. And I hope that in the end, I'll, I'll make this much in my career. This is what I'd like to do down the line. And so I think, you know, having a certain degree of buy-in is ultimately ideal because you'd hope that the kids that come out the other end of any sort of degree program that's actually worthwhile would be able to finance themselves better as a result of it in the end. So I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say I I agree that it's an across the board public good. Um, I'm certain that like, I mean, I, I have no issue with needs-based financial aids programs at all whatsoever. But I think, you know, you want any worthwhile degree to pay off in the end and have somebody be able to thrive as a result of having it. Yeah, I'm with Ricky on this and that there's some baseline level of costs for students, even if it's it's not backbreaking. Like, you know, that number, you know, your neck of the woods, uh, Mickey, the Miami-Dade, the fact that they have, you know, less than 2% of kids taking on debt to go there tells me that they're getting the numbers right. Like a few Mm -hmm. thousand dollars, you know, the person who has a job, you know, by and large could afford that. Uh, But it's enough to make you take it seriously so that you don't just treat it as a revolving door. Because I think the problem here is, I don't know if you guys have had this experience. Like a lot of my friends who are kind of struggling in high school would just because of the pressure would enroll at the, the college with the lowest uh, standards for entry. In our case, there's a local college. I won't name it because my mom works there and she'll get mad at me. Uh, but they had like low standards and everybody would go there because their parents would kind of pressure them to do it. And that just seemed like the thing to do. And then, uh, 
they their flake rate like honestly i can't think of a single friend who finished that program and so it just is frustrating for the people who do take it seriously and a lot of people are commuting you know across the city to go to the right program they're working two jobs and they get frustrated with the people who are coming in and out of the classroom the professors get frustrated by it and it also is terrible data and a waste of resources if there's too much subsidizing of those kinds of people yeah, I think Gen Z will um, certainly reverse some of those trends because I think that there's less kind of frivolous or perhaps not so passionate degree getting that's happening in my generation. People are, are rethinking the necessity of it. And I think that they're hopefully long term will be a higher percentage of people who are there because they want to be and not because they feel like they have to be. Well, I just got back from Italy and apparently I'm not alone as a Gen Z traveler. So Mickey, what's the trend there? Yeah, Ricky, obviously COVID decimated the tourism industry, but international travel is expected to reach 95% of pre-pandemic levels this year. And according to Morning Consult, 80% of leisure travels are Gen Z and millennials. And those Gen Z travelers, most of them, 61% say they're in less than $50,000 per year. And the cool thing about it is that a new credit card survey found that about half of millennial and Gen Z respondents have gone into debt, with 43% of Gen Z respondents are putting those charges on a credit card. Ravi, I know you love those credit card points and fancy airport lounge. Have you seen more Zoomers in there? No, uh, I have not. But I think I think the point with them is they don't travel like millennials. Millennials is who everybody like these these travel companies and these credit card companies, the airlines. They're marketing towards us right now because we spend money in a different kind of way. What's fascinating about Gen Z, if you look at data, I find this super surprising. That as you compare them to other generations based on the, the information we have, and the information's not perfect, is that they're traveling more international. And one of the reasons for that is that although domestic airfare is relatively stable over the past 20 to 30 years, uh, inflation adjusted, international travel is way cheaper. Uh, the Gen Z is more likely to visit a new spot than to revisit an old spot. Uh, and they're more likely to go somewhere because they saw it on TikTok or Instagram. So like on social. So they're getting a lot more information from social. You know, back, you know, our, our generation, millennials, I guess, Mickey, you're a millennial. Is that right? I am a millennial. Yeah. You're like a young millennial, I guess. For us, I think it was movies was like where we were seeing like, all right, I want to go to Barcelona because Vicky Cristina Barcelona the movie or something uh, where, and I think Gen X was the same. And actually like, the way Gen X traveled was very different. Like Before Sunset is like the seminal Gen X travel movie. Uh, and I think it's not that much different than the sort of millennial experience. These kids these days, Ricky, y'all seem to be traveling very different. <laughs> you sound like so, so rickety, get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> I like I it. I don't say, have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. These kids these days. Well, I, I mean, I would say I don't really see the social media development as necessarily a positive because like, Maybe it's nice you see something in a movie and then you want to go there. But I feel like the motivation to actually like document where you're going and be like, I'm so fancy and here I am in this place doing this thing is kind of like a, a less healthy outgrowth. You're not really living in the experience. Um, and 61% of Gen Z say that a top motivation for traveling is to post it, um, which is 
kind of unfortunate. I feel like people say are that one living, more time. How much 61, is that 61% say that a top motivation is to post about it on social media, which is really sad. Um, I was just, I was in Florence. My, I'm, I'm like such an old person and my mom had to like convince me to travel and leave my home. I'm such a house cat, but I was in Florence and I was very depressed by how many experiences I saw people having through cell phones and especially young people yeah. where I feel like it's just, fundamentally undermining the point of traveling in the first place if you're not actually looking at things with your actual eyeballs and just looking at it through screens. And I also have to say, I have a less rosy take on the Gen Z travel thing. Uh, They're taking, on average, three leisure trips a year, which sounds like a lot when you're as young as we are and you should be hopefully saving. And the idea that half of them have gone into credit card debt uh, in order to finance this certainly isn't a healthy way to start. And yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, maybe save up for one or two. That sounds like a nice goal. But to plunge yourself into debt, I don't think is a healthy or very good way to start off your uh, adulthood in, in the financial world. I agree. I'm not, I think it's a, it, I think it's, it, it's telling that people are going to get the right photo and they're putting themselves in credit card debt. It seems like there's some misplaced priorities. This makes me think about yeah. the book Sapiens, Yuval Harari. You know, he talked about how how strange travel really is. And I, I love to travel, to be clear. But I think this gets at, like, why do we travel? And I'll, I'll quote from, from his book. He said, there is nothing natural or obvious about this and the, this being travel. A chimpanzee alpha male would never think of using his power in order to go on a holiday into the territory of a neighboring chimpanzee band. The elite of ancient Egypt spent their fortunes building pyramids and having their corpses mummified, but none of them thought of going shopping in Babylon or taking a skiing holiday in Phoenicia. People day, today spend a great deal of money on holidays abroad because they are true believers in the myth of romantic consumerism. And he goes on to talk about how tourism is not selling flight tickets or hotel bedrooms. It's selling an experience. And these experiences are experiences of consumption, which are supposed to widen our horizons, but it's really just a story we tell ourselves. Now, one correction I would make to him is, yes, all that's true about ancient Egypt and all that, but history is filled with people doing insane things to experience you know, new lands, mm-hmm. you know, people taking treacherous journeys across oceans where they didn't even know what was on the other side of the ocean, you know, trekking through rainforests and not making out the other side, discovering, you know, the, the North and South pole, like human, there is something about humans. I would disagree with him on our innate sense of homely, you know, like, uh, you know, um, you know, introversion. Like, I think, yes, there's some people who want to just stay home. That's my mom. She just wants to stay in it's her me. neighborhood. She, build their pyramid. And then there are people who want to see new things and be adventurous. But I do think he's got something to say about what are we selling? Like, are we selling Mm -hmm. consumerism? I don't know. I was going to say that I love the idea of traveling to like find yourself. There's an Andre Gide quote that I love that he says, man cannot discover new oceans unless he has the courage to lose sight of the shore. I know for myself and like most of those around me that like some of the most amazing experience, like self-actualizing the connection to yourself and who you are and who you want to be have been through these moments of travel. But yeah, you and Ricky and Mickey, just to open up for you, you, you lost your mother this year. And one of the first things you did, correct me if I'm wrong, you Mm -hmm. kind of, you traveled a little bit. Yeah. I mean, travel has been a big part of my life, but I did some traveling, like some soul searching traveling. And it's been some of the most 
heart opening and heartwarming moments of just actual like allowing myself to be with the feelings of rather like go back to New York City and like have a life in downtown or whatever it may be. The fact that I allowed myself for two two months or so just like sit with it has been some of the most rewarding moments of my life and it's something I'm gonna remember and treasure forever. Yeah. But how do you do that, I think, is a question. Because I think there are people who are listening. And and Harari takes shots not just at Gen Z. In in his description, he talks about the couple who are on a fight and take the trip to Paris as a way to solve the fight. right? So like the sense that travel is going to solve certain things. Well, obviously, if you've ever been in a bad relationship, traveling is probably the last thing you want to do with that person. Mm-hmm. But the there there is a sense of like, what what is the proper role of travel? in our society is a question that I think we have not quite answered. And I think if, if you, if you had this, this experience, I don't know if either of you did, like as a kid in my family, like travel was very, it was a huge sacrifice for my mom. She worked two jobs. We didn't have a lot of money. And I remember saving up all this money and having this super high expectation. We went to Puerto Rico on a trip. It was like the first like Caribbean or whatever beach vacation I ever been on. There was just so much pressure on this trip that it wound up being unenjoyable because I felt so much pressure as a kid to just like have a good time, if that makes any sense. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation like that. And I think like a lot of people, if you're putting money on, if you're putting this travel on a credit card, whether you're a Gen Z or somebody else, like, or you're the couple who like is just building up like all this like expectation around what this trip is going to do for your relationship, all this kind of stories we tell ourselves about travel, they can be a little toxic to use a word that I hate to use. Well, I'll counter that with a few silver linings that I found in this data um, to finish up this conversation. But I think it's a good thing that 84% of Gen Z would rather spend on a trip than a luxury item. So they're more experience oriented. That's a positive. And I also would imagine that part of what's motivating them to travel so much, so much earlier in their life is probably because like very formative fundamental development years were spent locked down in like their parents' houses more likely than not. And so I think that there's probably a degree of just reclaiming that lost time, which is, I'd imagine, developmentally healthy and necessary for young people and maybe just like a kind of cheat code to seeing more things and doing stuff that they otherwise perhaps would have if the pandemic never happened. All right, guys, let's talk about remote work now. I think longtime listeners will know we've gone remote at what was then the lost debate, which is now the branch. And it, it was a relatively new experiment for us. I don't remember, guys, when when did we go fully remote? December, I think. So it was, it's been it's a couple months in the making now. And we could talk about what we've learned from that experience. But what's fascinating is there's some data here that seems to suggest that we might have reached peak remote work a while ago as of March Roughly 13% of U.S. job postings were remote, according to this group, uh, Manpower Group. And that's down from 17% in March 2022, but it's up from a pre-pandemic level of 4%. So these are just postings, right? So yeah. uh, that this is basically telling us where we're heading, which means that we might be seeing a slight dip in people working remotely into the future. And there's this guy named Nick Bloom, who's a Stanford economist, who says that by the end of 2023, which is this year, uh, he could see the share of remote postings falling to 10%, and that's, again, from 17%, and that there's more offshoring of remote work now. So to the extent that there are remote jobs, people are like, well, workers tend to be cheaper in other countries. If we're not going to ask people to go to an office, we might as well just you know, cast as wide a net as possible. 
I, I think like this is fascinating because I think, I don't know what you guys think. I think basically what I'm reading from this data is remote work to, today, 10 years from now, will be more than before the pandemic. It'll never be below mm-hmm. 4% ever again, but it won't be as dominant as it was in the sort of core years of the pandemic. Yeah, I also think there's a wrinkle here where 30% of all work right now is being done from home, which just means that people have been kind of like, you know, we're looking at new job postings versus who's just kind of grand- grandfathered in at this point to working remotely. Um, and I think that it might end up becoming more of the case of, you know, new job postings are in person, but maybe with seniority, you kind of earn the the hybrid privilege or something in between. Um, I kind of imagine that that will be baked in and that makes sense in terms of the generational differences and opinions on remote work. Like I know for me, having started my career in like the lockdown phase of the pandemic, where I've worked for people that I've never met in person or only did way after, um, that my generation has less of a, a rosy picture of what a remote career looks like because, you know, we're in smaller apartments or we have roommates or we haven't networked and we've never met our coworkers. And so um, just 27% of Gen Z say that they want to be like fully remote compared to 49% of millennials are open to that option. So I think going forward, it might be like a life chapter sort of thing that you gradually get the privilege from your employer for um, once you've kind of like developed and and earned that that option, perhaps um, I wouldn't be surprised if that if that's how that becomes baked in at a lot of companies. Yeah, I mean we we've done this now, and Mickey, you were a campaign manager on campaigns. You know, y- y- your your seminal work, your professional experiences mm-hmm. could not be done remotely. Really, I know that we all campaign remotely. I think you managed the campaign through the pandemic. Is that right? If I remember correctly. Yeah, it was absolutely terrible. We won though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I we were thinking we were talking about this offline where there's something beautiful about jobs that require you to be in person. And like, you know, there's a camaraderie that develops. Like I do miss the days of having us all in the office. Yes, it's great to be able to record this podcast. Right now I'm in Monterey, California, and the flexibility that offers is great. But at the same time, I do miss showing up to the office every day and having that serendipitous communication. And it's even, I think it's even more fun when you cannot do it remotely. So there's not even, you remove the debate. So it's a political campaign. It's a school. It's an emergency room, right? It's why um, Below Deck, the TV show, my new favorite show, is so compelling. It's like, you're just there. You can't run a yacht from a Zoom. And so there's so much that can happen. That show would suck if they were zooming in, right? So there's like something beautiful about having to be in person. And I'm, I'm kind of jealous of people who just don't, they do take that choice out of them. It's like a paradox of choice issue. Yeah, I kind of had the the thing of being like, oh, I, I hate working remotely and I've only known that. And so once I'm in an office and all of my qualms will be fixed and that didn't turn out to be the case either. Like I'm definitely a solidly hybrid person, which I think is the majority of people's um, preference because I, I think there's a, d- a clear downside to either extreme. Um, and yeah, 40, 41% of people um, who have a choice are doing the hybrid model. And I think that probably will end up becoming the new normal at least. Yep. And I think, 
And so you're going to the New York Post now a couple of days yeah. a week, right, Ricky? A couple of days a week. Yeah. Well, that's Which is of, funny. That's kind of a cool energy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The newsroom is like a super fun place to be. But I think the only downside is if you don't happen to pick the same days a week as I, everyone else, like occasionally you'll just be there and you're the only person, which is kind of crazy um, and a little bit eerie. So seen, I think. Sorry, go ahead. Have you seen? I know I know what the answer to this is going to be, but have you seen the movie The Paper with Michael Keaton? No. From 1994? No. Okay, so this is about basically the New York Post. So you should watch this movie. So it's about okay. like what it was like in the heydays of like the New York Post. <laughs> You're not going to watch it, I could tell. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's I will. it's a crazy movie. It has it has a very like not today by today's standards would ever have made it onto the screen scene that you'll just have to weather through at the end. But other than that, like it's a cool like reflection of what that in-person newspaper room vibe was yeah. at that, that heyday of the daily news, daily news and, and New York post. Yeah. You know, so many people ask me all the time, like, were you there with the Hunter Biden thing happening? And I wasn't yet, but it's also funny because they were remote at that point in time too. So like there wasn't that, um, kind of theatrical right. newsroom breakdown that everyone Stop kind of expects that there might've been. Yeah. But yeah. kind of a bummer. But it's a fun, it's a fun place to generate ideas. I think there's definitely, um, at least in my industry, a huge case for we're keeping that newsroom sort of um, heart beating. And so, yeah, and people tend to rate their experiences really high doing remote work, which is not surprising, right? Like if you, people are going to yeah. want more flexibility. So 71% of those who work from home most of the time say doing so helps them balance their work. Uh, and 52% said it helps a lot. Um Fifty-three percent of those who work from home, and this is from Pew Survey, uh, at least some of the time, say working from home hurts their ability to feel connected with their coworkers. Uh, so, like, people do feel like this is a struggle. Uh, and there was this interesting uh, Microsoft report that they put out that we'll put in the show notes, and it's an it's a fascinating read. We don't have enough time to do a huge deep dive into that. But it does get at what Microsoft Microsoft I think was going through this thing that I think all managers go through when they are managing remote employees, which is paranoia. (laughs) And they actually address it in their document to be like, look, we've got to stop being so paranoid about what people are doing. And people might feel creeped out by this, but they went, they didn't just do a survey. They basically did a huge deep dive to look at all their internal messaging and meetings and all that to say, look, you may be paranoid that your remote workers are not working, but more meetings are happening, more communication is happening, et cetera, than what happened before uh, we went remote. And so they're basically like settle down to everybody. It is kind of weird that they, they went through all the messages to do that, but, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. like more meetings is a good thing, but perhaps not, you know, I think we all felt that during the pandemic is like the, the zoom fatigue. Yeah. There's also a similar kind of trend on that note that I'm writing an article about like Gen Z employees and some of our peculiar habits um, as the pandemic professionals. And one thing that I've found a lot of people report is that it seems like my generation is very unproductive and we're like very fidgety and bouncing between tasks all the time. But that in the end, the end product or like amount of work that gets achieved seems to be roughly the same. And so on that front, I feel like 
people's remote habits or like technological habits are very different generationally. And I feel that same sort of like what they were saying about my generation ring true to me where I'll do like work in weird little bursts and then be like unproductive for a little bit or check something else and then go back to it. And so I think, you know, the the way that different generations are interacting with technology in the workplace and with remote work um, could also kind of shape the way they work, but perhaps not always be correlated with their productivity in the end. Hmm. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to being interviewed for that article, Ricky. (laughs) You're more than welcome to. I'd love to hear all your qualms about Gen Z employees. Managing Gen Z? I love Gen Z employees. I got no problem. I actually think young millennials, no offense, Mickey, you might agree with this, are the biggest pains in the ass. Not today, but Mm. I would say five years ago. You know, I don't think that's true. I, I think everyone's afraid of getting canceled by young Gen Z employees all the time. But I think that was, but I think that dynamic of the sort of like hostility uh, that existed a couple years ago was driven largely by that group, like the younger millennials, maybe older Gen mm. Gen Z. Uh, and I think the younger younger Gen Z, this is a broad generalization, but I think younger Gen Z <clears throat> almost resembled Gen X to me. Like they have like a way more, like I would say, charitable view to the people around them. But I don't know. I mean, I think that the way that administrators and and leaders in my generation's upbringing have kind of kowtowed to a lot of the uh, like outrage of my generation and campus shoutdowns and all and Twitter mobs and stuff. Like I, I don't know. I think that there's a sense of entitlement that Gen Z employees roll in with where if they feel like they've been wronged, they will make it heard and expect a scalp in the end. Should we talk about TikTok? Speaking of Gen Z? Yes, Mickey, you have two siblings who are influencers, I would say. Yeah. Very successful influencers. Please Mm -hmm. explain to us what's going on here with TikTok and music. Because the word on the street is this is where where the music's happening nowadays. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, Rav. You as an elder millennial have seen the evolution of music as technology has evolved. You know, we went from CDs to LimeWire to MySpace being a factor, Napster. Actually, pretty cool fact, Arctic Monkeys, my favorite band, are actually found on MySpace. And iTunes and Spotify changed the game. And now... It seems like TikTok is the big disruptor. A study from 2021 by MRC Data and TikTok found that 75% of TikTok users say they discover new artists in the platform. One of my favorite artists, Noah Khan, right now, I found him on TikTok. He has a song called Stick Season. I love it. I think to you, Rav, as like being an elder millennial, you've seen the evolution of how we listen to music, you know, like from <laughs> vinyls to CDs. Like, how do you think what TikTok is, is different than all these others? <laughs> oh I mean, there's God, a lot of educating Ricky. of Ricky here. I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> do you even, so Ricky, I'm always curious about these things. I, I assume you don't know what LimeWire is. I'll explain mm-hmm. in a second to the best of my ability, but tell, tell me what you think before we even get into this. When you, when, when I know you know what a CD is, but what, what's your experience with CDs? As somebody was born in 2001, right? 2000. I had my, my aunt gave me a Fer, the Fergie CD, the red one. When I was little and I had a Hello Kitty CD player and I listened to the hell out of that, which is a very funny thing to have like Fergalicious coming out of. Um, so that was, I had, I had CDs. I, I vaguely remember, I, <laughs> are the cassettes the like little, 
the little ones. Is that, that would be correct? The cassette. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that I vaguely remember that from like being like a toddler. I feel like that was still maybe a thing. But mm-hmm. um, I had I had a little bit of CD experience. I I think I purchased um, an Usher song on iTunes. That was like one of my first major ninety nine cent purchases. I remember that. And then, yep. um, yep. yeah, that's kind of I yeah. But I, I'm I'm familiar with a CD. Thank you so, for so, thinking oh. I wasn't. Well, I, I knew that you knew what it was. <laughs> I just am always fascinated by how you experienced it. Right. So mm-hmm. I think so. You asked what LimeWire is, and I think this is in some ways helpful background. Is so in the late nineties. It was it was at some point when I was in high school. You went from the period where you had CDs only to where you started to get digital music. MP3 was the format that this music came through. It's still how a lot of people have music on their on their computers. And what happened was the record labels weren't able to keep tabs on where all these mp3s were flying back and forth so you mm-hmm. would go, there were a number of different platforms that kept getting shut down limewire was one of them napster was one of them there were a whole bunch of them where you'd go online and you could just download music and then burn it onto a cd so you used to buy blank cds burn it onto a cd and then you'd like walk around with your disc man eventually you'd be able to put it on um a ipod and then it became iphone but in those days there was a lot of pirated music being traded on those things. So sometimes you'd get an album before it even come out. Uh, I know that even the concept of an album is different today, but I think like, you know, what Mickey is saying is like, all right, now people are getting their music from TikTok. You know, the data you cited Mickey was 2021. We're two years later now. I can imagine it's, it's even more serious. You talked about the Arctic monkeys getting discovered uh, through MySpace, which I didn't even know. That's crazy. But now you're getting artists left and right being mm-hmm. discovered on TikTok, there's a ton of, I think Little Nas X is an example of an artist who is discovered on TikTok. And a lot of these artists are either getting discovered there or central parts of their marketing and rollout is coming through TikTok right now. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting sort of complaints that we're hearing is that it's almost a little bit too manufactured. Like, record labels are a little too eager to make these fake viral moments. Um, I know was it Halsey that was complaining about like they were basically holding music of hers hostage in order to um, try to produce a, an artificially gradually viral moment to release her campaign. But that's only because there are legitimate examples of things just blowing up on TikTok and old songs as well. Like there was a, a children's song from 1932 that got like 1.4 million streams on Spotify after it just randomly was revived on, on TikTok and perhaps never really would have seen the light of day again, if not for it. So I think that there's like legitimate test case for why this can be beneficial to an artist, but perhaps like a cynical marketing aspect to it that might, I could imagine make people roll their eyes. Like I think we're probably gonna have to do TikTok stuff for our book when it comes out, which to me just, Mm. I'm very allergic to. I'm like really afraid of TikTok personally, but um, I don't know. I mean, it makes me think back, like didn't, wasn't Justin Bieber's origin story on YouTube and like, he went viral in that yep. sense. And so, I mean, it's just like the next generation of it. it. It makes sense. And I think it's probably even more facilitated by the fact that like the way that TikTok videos are often made is with these short form, like sounds that people reuse. And so then like, I've heard songs that I recognize. I don't think I ever would have heard otherwise, but I've recognized from seeing them go viral, even though I'm not currently on TikTok. Like I'll hear something on the radio and be like, oh, that's from that meme or whatever. 
and here's actually Post Malone, the artist Post Malone, talking about this whole trend. And he seems pretty excited about it. You know, there's so many different ways to get people to listen to your music. And TikTok is so fucking huge. I, I love it. Like everything, like, it. no, it's great. And you have people like, check out my new song and it goes fucking viral yeah, and yeah, that yeah. changes people's lives. Yeah. And, and you know, you discover talented people on there and everything. Yeah, for you real. Know? But it's just so hard for me to make something natural. Now, the the dark, the downside to all of this is that the economics of TikTok are not great for artists. So uh, we'll put this article from Billboard from 2022 in the show notes. And the, the numbers here are crazy. So they had one indie label head who shared several months of royalty information, which indicated that 1 million views on TikTok lead to about $8. Um, which is actually a better rate than some other people had shared. YouTube is a little bit better. So 1 million views there will earn somewhere between $500 and $2,000. Uh, and the article there's goes through like sponsored posts and that kind of economics, which is slightly better, but it's not great. Spotify is not great either. It uses a different model altogether, which is basically an artist's share of overall views in Spotify is how they divide up the revenue. I think some people mistakenly think that Spotify is like a per listen rate, but it's not. It's as a percentage of the total revenue that Spotify gets, almost like the way sports teams divide up the salary cap. So I don't know, like this back, back in the nineties, when there were albums by all accounts, this was by far the best economics for artists where they would have the combination of incredible revenue from album deals combined with a very healthy concert environment. And now I think when you've got TikTok uh, and you've got Spotify, there's just way less money in the actual selling of records. And I think because so many things are digital, although concerts, you know, like obviously people still go to concerts, it seems like those two industries are seeing downward pressure. It's not a great time to be an artist, at least to be a rich artist. Yeah. Although I guess you can make the case though, that TikTok is not designed to be any sort of native music listening platform and nobody is consuming their music that way, but it is this like additional potential to become a viral person and to, to garner uh, views and listens elsewhere. So I think it's a, a different kind of vehicle. I mean, perhaps it's not as evenly distributed as one might hope. And it just matters of like, do you get this weird random viral moment and then the algorithm picks you up? But, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly a different sort of application of music that, you know, if it weren't there, I imagine that there, uh, like the music industry might suffer in terms of, um, you know, just the, the more well-known artists only being the ones that people search up on Spotify or the, mm -hmm. the discoverability of it, I think maybe gives people renewed hope that they could break through and just become like an obscure person who's nominated for a Grammy, which I think just happened recently with a TikTok artist um, named Gail. I, I don't know her, but she was nominated mm -hmm. apparently. Well, in, uh, the the positive side of this, obviously, is the gatekeepers are gone. Like the music industry was famously mm -hmm. opaque for a long period of time. Like if you know whatever our feelings are about Kanye, the the Netflix documentary on him was really fascinating, and inspiring about how he basically had to. He was already a producer, and trying to get his album made and try to get the attention of people, he basically just show up. I think it was at Def Jam, um, 
And he would just show up and basically demand the attention of record executives in, in a way only Kanye could. That's at what that he did time. at Skechers. He showed up and demanded to be picked up by them recently. And he, this is a guy who already had the relationships. And so it's it's famously difficult. And so I think like if this at least maybe the the, the end result payouts are not as good, but the barriers to entry are better. That's a good sign. I think one big question left to ponder, though, is in a world where there is no TikTok, what happens? Like, what replaces it? Is it, do we just go to Instagram for these viral moments, Snapchat? You know, you talked about people not I mean, listening. We act like their- we didn't have social media before Instagram. I think, I mean, yeah. before TikTok, we were just fine before TikTok. <laughs> well, I think of it less as like, is this going to be the end of viral music or like just more like, where does it go? Because you talked about how people don't go to TikTok necessarily for like repeat listens or whatever, but they do go to YouTube for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, interesting would be, what would be particularly dangerous, I think, for the music industry is if the same platform that's creating the viral moments is the one where people go to for um, repeat listens, because then the yeah. economics get tricky. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Well, we have a voicemail from an anonymous caller who responded to our segments on recovery high schools. I'm a 46-year-old man. Um, I started, you know, smoking pot and drinking in high school and went from 4.0 GPA to, uh, you know, 3.0 or something. I had a really bad couple semesters. Almost tanked my chances at college. Um, got to college, continued to use. Um, and recently only got into some rehab and some group therapy, individualized therapy. Um, I think the point that your guys' piece misses is that substance abuse is rarely, you know, it is a disease in and of itself, but it's rarely alone. I I think that most of the time there's some other mental health or, you know, depression, anxiety, um, maybe some you know, roots from childhood, you know, and these people are learning tools at these schools that even if they don't remain sober, they, they're they aware of these tools or aware of these resources, and they come out the back end more self-reliant. I, I think it's sad, actually, that more high schools and schools in general don't have, um, you know, for instance, group, group therapy. <laughs> I've always thought that getting a bunch of high school kids, different backgrounds, different nationalities, races, ethnicities, everything – Talking together and empathizing with one another would uh, make people feel less alone and more able to make connections with different people later on. Well, thanks for this voicemail. It it makes me think of a lot of things. And he talks about how family life could could be feeding this. And I, I know from personal experience, this is true. My dad left when I was in seventh grade for good. And eighth grade, I got my stomach pumped for alcohol poisoning. I was struggled with substance abuse a lot when I was a kid, mainly alcohol. I think... This is tricky. I did do a group therapy, interestingly, in high school. There's four of us um, that they chose because we were all screwing up in our own ways. And there were four of us. And one one of my buddies, this guy Armin, in my, my group, died a year after high school. He was in my group therapy. Um, I'm not sure he got out what he wanted out of that. I certainly 
got a lot from the experience, but in many ways I turned it into individual therapy. I wound up seeking out that counselor and meeting with her one-on-one just because the group dynamic was tough. Like, this is what I was worried about with the recovery high school stuff is like sometimes when you group people together with the same pathologies, sometimes it, it can't, it can, it can backfire. And I think in some ways that group backfired in certain ways, but I continue to be bullish on recovery high schools. And I think the general gist of what this listener is saying resonates with me, which is that we just need more counseling. We need to give kids more help. And sometimes it doesn't mean sending them to their own high school. Absolutely. I know for myself that if it wasn't for my counselor in, if it was for my counselor in high school, like I would not be in New York City today or the person I am today. Like I'd probably still be some kid in Florida trying to figure out who he is and doing things that he shouldn't do. So I, I'm... Same as you, Rob, very bullish on recover, recovery um, high but schools. Mickey, you're, and feel free, to, you don't have to share any of this, but like you struggled after high school too, right? Like it wasn't like your you, problem was solved in high school. Yeah, it was more of, during high school, I just like thought that what cool things were was to like party and booze and stuff like that. And when I moved to New York, I like luckily got into modeling right away and like the doors opened immediately. Like I was fresh off the, you know, fresh off the van, as they say, and next thing I know, I'm at some fashion week party when everything is available. To me, what kind of brought me back was trying to be of service and like that eye-opening, like having like my brother being someone who like is into wellness and all these different things opened my eyes that it's never the answer just to go and be someone who people think are is like vapid and fun. There needs to be more depth in there and that kind of changed my life. And it was through friends, family, and counselors. And like, I've been seeing my therapist now for a long time and like means it means so much to me. Ricky, what were the services like at your high school? Um, the, I, I think that they were available for anyone who needed it. I went to a boarding school. I mean, I think that was like a really depressing environment for a lot of kids being alone and away from your family at 14 is really challenging. I think they underestimate that particularly for girls. I find weirdly just, Mm -hmm. I don't think that age group is as natural to form group bonds in a, in a healthy way. I think there's still a lot of that like kind of residual middle school cattiness. Um, I think we had three counselors. (laughs) I, I went to um, a counselor when I was at that school who I had a terrific experience with, but I mean, it's a really small team for a large amount of students. And I know that there's a a really large um, suicide problem uh, at boarding schools like mine, including mine, and um, consistently felt people felt that there weren't enough people to help. And I, I mean, it goes to show that even today and like the, we talk about the Gen Z mental health crisis and that goes from from people that might end up in recovery high schools to people who end up having to go to recovery uh, like retreats and stuff from boarding schools. Like it's just across the board. There's a crisis mm-hmm. with my generation. And so, yeah. yeah, unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I think this, we'll talk about this another time too, but this is what makes me think like every school should assign a kid a coach. Like obviously there's, there's technical therapy, right? And that's like a trained person who needs to have that kind of skill set. But I think every kid should have an adult they can go to talk to, whether they officially like, you know, are designated in need of something that's like medical grade. I just think that you should be able to say, all right, this is not just the person who's teaching me earth science, but it's somebody who I could sit down with and just check in with and tell them what my struggles are. 
because yeah. I think everybody's had that experience of being in school and not knowing who to talk to. You don't want to talk to your friends because you don't want to be vulnerable with them. Sometimes you might be getting bullied, so you don't really have friends to talk to. You don't want to go to the adults because you feel like some of the things you might share with them could get you in trouble. And so you, you're kind of isolated. And, you know, Lord knows you probably can't go to your parents either. And I think that's a dangerous environment that I think so many kids go through. Absolutely. All right. Well, Mickey, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we will be back on Thursday. Uh, and we've got a very special episode on Thursday. Uh, we're going to talk about an issue that's near and dear to our hearts. We're going to talk about kids and whether we're taking care of kids in the foster care system uh, and post-foster care system well. Uh, it's going to be a deep dive episode that uh, is going to be a little different format-wise, but we decided to do it that way because... Honestly, there's just not enough coverage of what is probably the most important thing we do as a society, which is take care of vulnerable kids. So please check that one out. Um, we're going to go all the way from the orphanage system through the foster care system uh, and go through the history and talk about how we do things well. So with that, um, we will talk to you Thursday. Thank you, everybody. The Lost Debate is the flagship show from The Branch. Our executive producer is Nick Perone, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, audio editing by Dean Metherell. <laughs>